Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. My name is Amy Blewett and I am the Events and Lectures Coordinator here. I'm delighted to welcome you to this very special event with internationally renowned artist Frank Auerbach, who is the maker of some of the most resonant and inventive paintings in recent times and is today one of Britain's most celebrated artists. In 2001, the Royal Academy hosted a retrospective dedicated to his paintings and drawings, and he was also one of several contemporary artists whose work featured in the display by Jenny Savile RA, which was a personal response to the Rubens exhibitions, which took place earlier this year. Today's event precedes an exhibition of Frank Auerbach's paintings and drawings at Tate Britain, opening this October, and also coincides with the publication of the book Frank Auerbach, Speaking and Painting, by Catherine Lampert, which has been published by Thames and Hudson and is available to purchase from the RA shop. Today we also welcome the RA's Director of Artistic Programmes, Tim Marley, who will be joining Frank Auerbach in conversation to reflect on his prolific career as a painter and finding out what drives him to paint every single day of the year. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Frank Auerbach and Tim Marley. I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to this, but Frank's quite rightly said, let's lower expectations. The person who really should be doing this talk is Catherine Lampert. It was Catherine, I think, who rather modestly decided that someone else might do it, and I'm delighted to get that opportunity. But in a way, Frank, your relationship with Catherine, um, I think, is over 30 years of regular sitting. So this book that she's produced that I commend to everyone, I mean, to buy, um, is... It's, it, in some ways, the, the, the conventional monograph or biography involves a lot of looking back on behalf of the sitter, but I, I get the feeling with Catherine and you that she's lived through quite a lot of it and you've, you'll have had a lot of conversations anyway, so she's not had to force you recently to look back. However, the exhibition you're about to do in Germany and then at Tate Britain, a retrospective, by definition will have made you look back. How is that process for you? Is it something that you find creative or daunting or irritating or just something you have to do? It's totally painless because Catherine does all the work. And, uh, and uh, I don't, in fact, brood about my past work. Uh, the only time I, I uh, have any strong feelings about it was when I feel I've let something out that I'm ashamed of. Otherwise, I... And with the passage of time, this has become more so. I have almost no interest in the pictures that I've done in the past. I mean, I hope that, like children that have gone out into the world, they've found comfortable homes and are happy. But uh, I, the, uh, all that I think about and brood about and worry about and occasionally even dream about are the paintings that I'm working on at the moment. And I don't do any looking back. Not, not really in any respect, and particularly not as regards my pictures. There's nothing I can do about them anymore. What's the point of looking back? That's nothing true. I can do about my past life either. But when you do encounter work from the past, um, yes. percentage is probably too, too brutal a way of asking you, yes. but how many paintings, or are there many paintings, that you wished you hadn't let out into the world? I mean, you said, you know, if I'm ashamed of letting things out of the world, how how do you feel when you encounter... There are some. I've tried to to, uh, 
be uh, stringent in my judgment as to what I let out. Um, and I, it's surprisingly rarely that I see my pictures up on anybody's wall. And when I do, there are only two possible feelings. One of them is it seems a bit tame to me, and I'm sorry. And the other one is it seems okay, and I hope it will be safe. They're both feelings that make me uneasy. And I mean, I've tried my best to be very, very critical, and, uh, I, but nobody's ever quite critical enough. I believe that I heard some story about some younger actor being told by Gary Cooper in Hollywood, as long as three out of five films are all right, your career will survive. And the younger actor th- thought, well, I'm really serious. I'm absolutely determined never to do anything that I don't believe in, and I shall do better than that. And when 20 years had passed, he said, Gary Cooper was quite right, it's three out of five. <laughs> you... Um just before we came in here, you advanced a theory, which I think was a very interesting one. You described it as a, as a frivolous theory, but not a theory nonetheless, that in, in the careers of many great artists, you can, you can often find that the early and then the late work at the high points, and often there's a kind of drifting off in, in, in middle career. Um, given that you've said you don't look back, and you, you, I think you've said on other occasions that you're not self-aware in that way, I'm still going to ask you, how does that relate to your career? Because I think there's been an amazing consistency. And, just before I get you to answer it, I don't think you've hit your late period yet, but how, how does that theory relate to your own work? <laughs> You're very optimistic on my behalf, I must say. <laughs> uh, but uh, it, it, but um, I, the only interesting answers are honest ones. And all my life, I, I, I know that in the, when I was in my early 20s, uh, I know that I was working to the absolute full extent of my whatever capabilities I possess and I felt I was doing things as extreme as I was able to do them for the rest of my life I've always felt that I was in danger of coming off the tightrope and sometimes I felt that that had in some way weakened or deteriorated very occasionally I have to admit when I look back it doesn't look quite as bad as I thought but I've never felt that I was getting better I've very frequently felt that I was getting worse, but I'm still trying. And I have to say that I may be playing a little trick on myself because Blake's aphorism about um, damn braces, bless, bless relaxes, certainly works for me. It doesn't help me at all when I'm praised or when anybody says they like anything. The only thing that I find stimulating is... Uh, an unfavorable judgment and an unfavorable judgment for myself uh, you know failing anybody else is, is of great use to me Who's, whose opinions who, do you most respect them? who gives you those pithy un, or expansive unfavorable judgments that, that stimulate you I wish all my life I've wished for a really uh, destructive brilliantly talented critic uh, who hated my work and perhaps because of my, my conceit, the not inconsiderable number of people who've hated my work have always seemed to me to be rather despicable. <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't found that they've ever said anything very clever or very pointed. Very, very occasionally a passing remark from a colleague is a help. But it's, and uh, uh, you know, sometimes, I mean, I've been lucky enough to have friends whom I thought were whom I admired, and uh, I mean, Leon Kossoff and Mike Andrews and 
Francis Bacon and Lucien Freud would occasionally, without, whether they wanted to or not, make some suggestion of dissatisfaction with something I'd done, and I found that useful. I don't think I can go any further than that. I don't think anybody else's uh, judgment has been of the slightest use to me. It's very occasionally a sitter. Uh, I had a sitter, a man who was at the... Um, well, Catherine will know this, but who was at the work at the Marlborough, and I was doing some drawings of him, and uh, I occasionally do this because I can't see the thing anymore. I say, do you think this is finished? And sometimes people say yes, and sometimes people say no. But I put it up, and it was in the middle of drawing, and said, do you think this is finished? And he said, no. That's the most useful criticism I've ever had in my life. <laughs> he was right. He was called Chris Dark, in case anybody... I want to move on to models in a minute, but, yes. um, but um, I know, for example, I mean, I only um, knew Lucien a little towards the yes. end of his life, but I, yes. I know he valued your view on his art. He told me when I yes. asked him the question that he valued your opinion, he respected your opinion about his painting more than anyone else. And that I think it's, it's well known that he would ask you to come and see work at certain stages yes. of, of the work's um, evolution. Um, was he as candid with you as you were with him about um, yes work? yes he had a, he had a totally different uh, approach to things uh, he would notice things like whether a, a drawing was sentimental you know he wasn't he never he didn't say things about formal things he was very very aware of the emotional interplay of the work and i have to say that in case it seems that i as though I feel myself to be superior to Lucien, this is very far from being the case. I think it's a great strength of his that he was able to get me over and for me to say very specific things about a painting. I said, you know, I think this tone doesn't work or that doesn't work. And so on, to be able to incorporate it in his own procedure, sometimes he would take notice, and sometimes he wouldn't. But then his idiom was very different to mine. That is, Lucien proceeded uh, by stages and had an extraordinarily power of concentration so that I felt that he was actually aware, wherever he was, of what precise stage the painting had reached and where he was going to go next, so that something that I'd said might be incorporated in that process. I hope that something will happen, some miracle will happen, and that the painting finishes itself, and I tend to repaint the picture from top to bottom more or less every time, so that anybody saying the top right-hand corner doesn't work, or I think this color is a bit negative or something, is not, the slightest, is not of the slightest use to me, because I don't, I don't uh, manipulate my paintings as to do this or that. I repaint them. I repaint them all the time. So, in fact, um, I mean, the, the, yeah, the, the idea that Lucin was it was it was sequential in that way, or there's yes, a yes. series of accretions. For you, it, it you have no sense where the painting is going to go, even when you've begun it and started to wrestle with with paint. Or rather, it's unlike it's unusual for you to have a sense of where you're going to go. No, I've been sleepwalking all my life, really. But uh, what happens is that they, I, I learn. I mean the. the Every single painting, even if it's of the same subject, even if it's of the same subject the twelfth time, 
if something's moved slightly to the left or to the right or takes on a bigger canvas or a smaller canvas, it's an entirely different formal problem. And gradually I become used to, I do, might do the same stupid thing again and again, and after I've done it half a dozen times, I may realize this is extremely stupid, or I may do the same timid thing again and again, I might find it's timid, or I might, you know, and, and get so impatient with the painting and have acquired so much feeling about all the things that have gone on that when I repaint it, a lot more is brought into play in the way of memory and knowledge and observation than it was at the beginning. And so, uh, I, I mean, I, I noticed that sometimes some of the small paintings look as though they're uh, a la prima done in one go outside the land. They're not like that at all. There's not, there isn't a painting of mine that hasn't gone through 30, 40, 50, or 200 separate versions before it's finished. Is it inconceivable that a painting could be done immediately? You could get it right immediately? I dream of that, and it's never happened. And you would think that if I've painted the same head in the same pose, it would, I would be able to do something quickly. It's never happened. I, I mean, I, I would love to be able to do that, just to, you know, to feel something interesting and to be able to put it down directly in the way that, you know, somebody like Picasso must, I suppose, have done, or Van Gogh, which sometimes did two of his amazingly complete, classically conceived, alive paintings in a day. But I don't work like that. I, I work, I feel as though I'm stumbling around, doing every, going wrong in every single possible way until I, something happens, until that gets a bit better than that and that presents me with something that I can accept. Is it a very quick thing when it happens? Or is even that part of a slow I can't process? predict it. Although very occasionally I feel that I'm getting towards the end because something has sort of arisen out of the process of painting that looks interesting to me. But uh, sometimes I feel, you know, I'm really tired tonight and sometimes it happens. Or I'm uh, getting spots before the eyes and it happens, as happened recently. Uh, and it, it, I can't predict it. But it's, it usually happens when I've rehearsed the problem again and again and again and again and again. And uh, then, out of sheer impatience, perhaps, become more reckless or more daring or more arbitrary. And once or twice, I'm able to finish it. I mean, when you say I'm prolific, I haven't been terribly prolific. It's been 70 years. And, uh, you know, I work seven days and five evenings a week. And the finished paintings occur at considerable intervals. And particularly, I think... You you said that probably 95% of the paint you apply is at various stages scraped off. Yes. Um, so you, you, we probably could say you're prolific in your use of paint, but in the yes. end result, <laughs> certainly less, that. less so. Yes, no, the colour merchants, have, I'm, a, I'm a darling of the colour merchants. <laughs> um, I am very curious about this idea about being in the moment or the eternal present. Yes. I mean, you've talked about, very eloquently just now, but in the yes. past about... This the process and traces and having to scrape off and so on. Um, uh, so everything you do is obviously a consequence of, uh, in the end, of, of what's happened before on the journey of a particular painting. Yes. But are you 
detached from what happened yesterday? Uh, uh, is it part of the subconscious? Or is absolutely, it's all part of being in the moment? You're very conscious of the previous 300 days you worked on this no, painting? No, I'm not conscious of them. They're, they're just they're unverbalized, unformalized, but rehearsed. Very much I imagine in the way that various sports or actors or something are rehearsed, that what is what has at the beginning been conscious and a decision and observation has become second nature and one's able to concentrate on something a bit further along. And I have to say that when the thing really, really works and the whole of oneself is involved, it happens not very frequently, I really couldn't tell you what I'm doing and what I'm thinking because you must have noticed in your life that people who think themselves intelligent really are because they're thinking about thinking, about thinking about thinking themselves intelligent. And if one's really thinking, one's not, one's not aware of it. One's totally immersed in what one's doing. So there is a, tra a transcendental, yeah. maybe putting it too extreme, but you, there's a loss of a sense of self when you're absolutely well, there's, in that there's a loss of a verbalisation, that's all. The sitters that you have worked with, I mean, I, and there have been a lot of sitters, but yeah. I think the idea that, that there's perhaps ten who you've worked with for, for decades, yeah. I think people are very uh, curious about the nature of your relationships with them. I don't mean intimacy and so on, we, although we could talk yeah. about that later in, yeah. in relation to the nude, but I mean um, this ongoing, presumably deep relationship that you have with, with different sitters. How much do they, their character, their mood, rather than just their physical presence, affect your process and how much does your mood and so on affect uh, the, the process and the way that they're interpreted? I so imagine it's a mixture but I don't know. Well, for one thing, they're all people I respect and like and for another, their mood certainly does affect me. I mean, you know, it, it's not an easy process. Backache comes into it and being tired comes into it and I'm extraordinarily grateful and people go through different stages in their life and all these things have their effect on me. Uh, and, diff and I behave differently uh, with different people. Um, it, it, uh, it's just some talk more, or some I talk more, and some less. And it, it, it just creates a different atmosphere and a different way of behavior. I can't pin it down further than that. But it's, I feel that I'm going further when I paint the same person again. I feel as though there's no such thing as a definitive encapsulation of a person. And if you've got one, uh, you feel that something else has escaped one, and then you try for another. And it isn't a conscious process. I don't think I'm going to do this about that person. It simply happens, you know. I, sometimes I'm more ruthless, sometimes I'm more observant, sometimes more determined. My son says very touchingly that he's aware of when things are going well and he's trying to look more like himself when that happens. Uh, so it's, it's different and it's, it, I just feel I've been extraordinarily lucky to, you know, to have people there and I find it very, very difficult to imagine being in a room by myself and looking at the wall and thinking what art shall I do next? Because it's I want it to be something that stands up for itself and that works by its own rules and that even if you saw it upside down or halfway across the world would still have a vitality, which is finally, I suppose, a sort of subtext or an inner vitality. But I'd also, it, for me, that arises entirely from my physical experience, my 
place in the world. And if it, I, I didn't, it's not what I hoped to do, but I realized that unless Catherine quotes this, but uh, Sickert says somewhere, slightingly of something, that it isn't exactly a page torn from the Book of Life. And actually, I'd like my pictures to feel as though they were a page torn from the Book of Life. And I have to say that 95% of the pictures that I see on the walls seem concoctions to me. Just picking up on that, but actually returning to the idea of the model too, the, you talk about the, you, the, knowing someone more, you, you, you go deeper. But yeah. the paintings are not about uh, knowing someone better. They're about being able to, 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 to represent, explore the experience of being physically with them and, 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 and representing something of their physical presence. Is that right? Well, you're making it a little more, as it were, wholesome than it is, because I also wanted to be an extraordinary image. I mean, I got a photograph this morning through the post of something um, that I'd finished about two months ago, and I find that very valuable because I really don't particularly... And I know it feels as though I've finished something, but I don't brood over things, I don't look at things, and I try and ship them out as quickly as possible. And this looked to me a bit fierce, a bit wild, a bit strange, as an image. And all these things that one does to lead up to it are finally so that there should be an image on the canvas, in the frame, that has its own life and its own vitality, and I hope wakes one up and disturbs one. We were looking on the way here at the constable, and, the, and I've looked at constables again and again and again, and they've become, you know, they're on tea trays, they're on biscuit tins, and people, I think, think of them as, A, beautiful, and B, very English, and so on, and they are the strangest of productions. They, I mean, as far as surrealism is concerned, Dali is not, it was an interesting painter, but it's not half as surrealist as that extraordinary a monument to Sir Joshua Reynolds surrounded by dank vegetation. I mean, it, it, it sends shivers down my back. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, 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 an acceptable composition. It's a strange, haunted, curious thing. And Salisbury Cathedral, rarefied, reaching to the heavens, and an old cart in the front of, made of misshapen logs and so on, is a surrealist contrast. We've got used to these things, but the great paintings are very, very strange. I don't know who it was who said that art should be convulsive, but unless it's that, it's nothing. Art for, to be wholesome and sensible and what they call beautiful is of not the slightest use. It's supposed to, to quicken one into life. It was Andre Bresson, incidentally. But, um, yes, no, thank you. We, we were looking at the... Just to share that, the, that you weren't there, sorry. No, no, I'm but grateful I, as well. Yeah, no, any, any, any footnotes are very, very welcome. No, but I, what I wanted to do was share the extraordinary experience of just looking at the Leaping Horse, which is yeah. the Constable's diploma work, and it's yeah. in the far yeah. room, the fine room. As we looked at it, you know, I, I knew Frank knew it better than I did, but I have spent quite a lot of time in the yeah. last year, and I love that painting. And, of course... The last thing that I ever focused on was the <laughs> rotting timber in the foreground. And you made this wonderful aside that this has never been attempted in the history no. of art. No one's depicted rotting timber. So already, yours is a, a, a different vision to mine, but I think to most or to many. What I wanted to pick up, though, on that was this all-over quality that, that oft seems to be the case in great painting. Yeah. That if you're focusing on a head or a body... One of the familiar cliches or tropes is it's all about the head or the eyes. No, no. That's never been the case for you, has it? It, it, it? The thing has to be unified all over or it doesn't Unless work. everything refers to everything else in the painting. Uh, it isn't a painting. It's as simple as that. It's something else. It's an illustration 
it's, it, it, it may, it's evidence of something, but a painting is something that is a sort of perpetuum mobile that has an inner engine that keeps it alive. So that even and painting and I, 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 I said it I said it when we were speaking earlier, but. No, no painting is 200 years old as exactly as it was when it was finished. The colors change. The slightest change of tone somewhere makes a different emphasis on the lines. On so in some and and uh, I, I'm sure that every word in Shakespeare is doesn't carry exactly the same value as it did in Shakespeare's time. But if somebody's invested so much force and hope into the thing, but it, 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 there's no. It, it's sort of miraculous. It still seems to maintain its its life because so much life has been invested in it, even though all sorts of things have altered about it. And I think one of the things that makes it, uh, as it were, perpetually alive is the fact that there isn't a single thing in a good painting that doesn't lead to everything else that is there. So it, you're always on a journey when you're looking at it. There's something almost um, akin to perpetual motion in the way you now work, given that famously it's seven days a week, evenings, there's, there's never time off. Now, I, I understand compulsion and obsession and just the need to do something uh, uh, as fully and immersively as possible. But of course, sometimes distance gives us an opportunity of um, refreshing or uh, sort of gaining a different kind of perspective of the one that we, we, can't, we can't wrestle with or crack. Um, do you ever... Have you ever been tempted, at least, to take time out in order to um, understand better? Yeah, I, when I was younger, you see, I mean, I had the, the same sort of messy, youthful life full of my bad behaviour. And, uh, 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 and that it, it was certainly distracting. And uh, I, I was always struggling and behaving very badly in order to put the painting before what I was what as a human being was the was, was my obligation to be a decent human being I put decent painting before being a decent human being uh, and uh, so that I never felt I was I was short of material in that sense as I've got older and my as and my energy has waned uh, I in the studio and even so I still were just the very tame elderly person's life that I lead uh, still feeds me with uh, more than enough experience and these days it, I don't work in quite the wild way that I used to. I find myself occasionally sitting down and when you're old time passes much more quickly than it used to and unless I have this clear time every day in the studio and by, and by myself or with a model I just feel like and I'm confused. I can't carry on with what I'm doing. So that's what, how it's come about. I mean, I, I, I used to have, have to struggle to find the time to work. And then when I finally had the time to work, I would have been mad not to use all of it. The, the, I love your description of bad yeah. behavior. I mean, that's your. Uh, well, so we're all thinking exactly what, what that means. I mean. Um, <laughs> Uh, Lucian and uh, Francis Bacon, who, who you've mentioned as yeah. close friends, yeah. uh, I think behaved badly in different ways right to the end of their lives. I mean, they drank, they, they womanized, or in Francis's case, they uh, manized, <laughs> boyized. Um, 
I don't know that that's particularly bad behaviour. No, well, that's I have, what to I, say, I have to say in both of them, there were also sensational examples of very good and generous behaviour in both their cases. So when you, we talk about bad behaviour with you, do you mean in the way that you treat people or the way you engage with the world? I, I think I've just behaved badly all around. <laughs> I mean, I, I sometimes, I don't, I'm not unique in this, but sometimes I walk along and think of things that I did, most, mostly to do with treating girls badly or lady, women badly, and just stop in my tracks and think, how could I possibly have done that? I mean, outrageous, disgusting, just, I don't want to go into it. Now, so, I'm making a reductive leap here, yeah. but um, given that you have said, and it's in Catherine's book as well, that actually you find, it very you find it very difficult to paint a nude of someone who you don't know intimately. Yes. There are examples of models that, who came yes. that you haven't yeah. had intimate relations with yeah. and you find it very difficult to do. And given that you're now saying you haven't got the energy for anything else other than painting, yes. um, is painting a kind of sexual act? Is it a sexual surrogacy no. in any way? No. Renoir said this, sort of knows what he meant. Yes. But uh, in fact, I've got... Uh, uh, and. Uh, it was Francis who first put it to me, said it was nonsense, he said he was wrong, and he was right. It's, it's, it, there is a connection between various sorts of excitement, and I, if it's true that Mondrian lived an entirely chaste life, I can't see how he quite revved himself up to make the extraordinary explorations they did make, because it's sexual relations are to hand, and they present, uh, I don't see why I should be doing this. Sounds like Erich von Stroheimer as one so behaving very badly <laughs> in old age. But, I mean, you know, a certain self-forgetful excitement does make one aware of what one's capable of or what can happen. So there is a sort of the things run along parallel lines, but I, I'm not an authority and I wouldn't go on like that. But uh, I don't know what your question was, but I think that's enough of that. No, it is. <laughs> My question was nebulous. You went right the way down that route. I'm delighted. Um, no, but, okay, but the one thing I'd love to follow up with on that is yeah. this idea of intimacy and, uh, and, and, and the nude and the understanding. Is it because you know someone's flesh or is it because there is a, a relaxed complicity between you and the model, and none of that false thing about one naked, one clothes on. I mean, what is it about the intimacy that makes I, the new? I, I think that I think the flesh thing is certainly. There's a. I mean, I read this was a divagation, but I read a, sometimes read things really aggressive, hostile reviews of Lucian Freud's work, suggesting that he shouldn't be painting women. I mean, the, the suggestion was he shouldn't be painting what interests him. And if this sort of thing didn't interest men, the human race would come to an end. I mean, it's a ludicrous idea. that be a, uh, There used to be a feminist uh, movement about the objectification of women. Well, everything, in a sense, is objectified if one paints it, but one paints it out of passion. Mirandi objectified jugs, and a juggist movement could well stand up and revolt against these things being used, these beautiful, innocent jugs being used for, by... <laughs> by nude painters to make their pictures. One paints what one's interested in, and one's more, interested, one's more likely to be interested in the body of somebody when one's got intimate uh, experience of it, and it means all sorts of things to one. And that, you know, it seems obvious to me. And also, I, there is such a thing as the academic nude, we all know it, and the academy used to be full of it, and it's still not entirely devoid of it, where somebody 
poses, like a waxwork model, or like that thing that they used to have on the music halls. There used to be nude shows, no nudes is good nudes, and things, you know, and you went along, and the people were not allowed to move, and sometimes they wore a pink body stocking. And this is a totally artificial thing. And it, it, it actually seems to me to be ridiculous. The only reason for painting a naked woman is that you're interested in naked women. And the reason for painting a naked woman that you know is because you're more interested in her being naked than you are in anybody else. Uh, there's a lovely poem by Adrian Mitchell about how he's depressed, and, but then he, as I walked down Kingswell, I thought of Cynthia, his wife, with nothing on, cheered him up. Well, you know, that's a motive. It is indeed. I am... Um, <laughs> There's no sign that you've lost passion or, or commitment. That was a, a wonderful answer. Um, uh, and there is, in the book, uh, uh, it seems to be consistent from your models that actually the physical passion, energy, almost violence of process hasn't significantly diminished, even though you seem to imply that uh, as you get older you need to sit down more. Um, yeah. have, do you... Well, I'd, I'd like to talk to you about... I mean, given that you said you're often unaware of what you know, yourself as you're doing it... Yeah. Does reading models' accounts of what it's like to sit for you, does that enlighten you in any way, or can you not afford to be interested in that? It's not. It's really neither. It's, I mean, I'm, I, I, I feel extraordinarily dependent on the people who are sitting for me. Nobody's said anything very unkind. And uh, I, 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 it doesn't particularly add anything to my experience of trying to paint them. What, what about anger, though? Does, about? does anger fuel the process for you? We saw well, a flash yes. of it, then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anger, but, and, and anger can possibly be a transferred anger, but that was more in youth. Uh, I mean, I remember once fa uh, finishing a picture of EOW because uh, she'd put up somebody, in, and, I, and somehow I've, I felt that the routine had been disturbed. And I remember using the, or the anger being useful in finishing the picture, which happened very rarely. But mostly the anger is about simply anger and impatience with the fact that the picture doesn't work, and anger with my own timidity and uh, incompetence, and uh, that, that I'm not finishing it. And then sometimes when I've tried everything else, I think. You know, then I just lash out, and sometimes that finishes a picture, and sometimes it doesn't. So the process, perhaps almost every every day, every morning, or whenever it may be in the day, of removing what was done yesterday, scraping yeah. off, that's resignation rather than anger. The anger is actually often during the process of manipulating this this yes, mystical it stuff is. that is. Painted. And it's technical as well. It's technical. I mean, my paintings used because I knew no other way of painting to be these. Uh, uh, very thick lumps, which I'm not ashamed of, but uh, it would be uh, ludicrous to, I feel it would be ludicrous to keep on doing this all one's life. And uh, I tried to get, get them to be more like proper paintings, and I found that I was able to work, I suppose, in a way more freely if I scraped the whole thing down and worked on a flat surface rather than a rugged one. Yeah. We, we were mentioning just in passing um, Chuck Close, who's someone I came quite close to in the last few years, who, yeah. because of the nature of his physical um, disability, says that everything is slow in his life. And even painting takes a lot longer than he'd like it to, but it's the one time in, in his daily routine yeah. when he feels alive 
and time is, 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 is he's not conscious of time dragging. Yeah. Um, I think for almost anyone, even, even if they have a passion, doing something seven days a week, 365 or maybe just 364 days a year, maybe one day off, um, yeah. there might be a sense of, of tedium or sacrifice. Does it, does it ever, do you ever wake up in the morning and think, God, no, I can't face it? No, I'm sorry, I really don't. I don't know whether it's, it's also, for one thing, I've always felt, behind, you know, I've always felt slow and I've always felt time's passing too quickly and I felt that, no, I don't. And it, it, actually, it, it seems, I mean, even the beginnings of the clumsy beginnings, and I'm just, I'm just starting a sort of biggish one, uh, there are all sorts of interesting things to think about all the time. It's, it's an, I find it an enormously entertaining process. I mean, quite apart from the possibly more self-forgetful uh, business of being so immersed that one doesn't quite know what one's doing, even when one knows what one's doing, there are all sorts of things to think about, and they're jolly interesting. And I have, I have subjects. And, I mean, it's quite simple, practical things, like I think, do I want to distort this in order to make this work better? And then, then no, on the whole, it's better to leave it awkward and understood. I mean, you know, I don't know, they're endless, endless ideas one can have about it. And I'm never bored with the process of painting. I'm not. Was there a, a moment in your adolescence or childhood when it became clear that you wanted to be a painter and then that was it? Or was it, was it a slower realisation than that? No, I had... But very, very many people had. I, 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 I was naturally attracted, I think, to what's called the arts. I'm not musical at all, but I read all the time. I read, I read a book a day and I um, painted and drew and I, at the sc and I acted and various school things. And I, it was partly the negative side of it is that I'd worked when I was 14 in an office called Gisab as an office boy uh, filing and uh, I thought, never, never, never do I want to do this again. I'd rather be a tramp. And it was also the positive thing that uh, it's, it, it, I was just... I wanted to do something that amused me as much as these, as writing verse or acting or painting. And in fact, I think I was, if anything, not particularly... I mean, I wasn't one of these people who did brilliant drawings at school, or, you know. I didn't c come up in that way. In fact, if anything, I think I had more facility for words than for, for, uh, for painting. But when I went to an art school, I... I gradually found that this, it, it, it's a little bit like being challenged to a duel. Once you're there, you either do it or you don't do it. You know, you've got, but it, I, in a way, I'm grateful that I didn't come up by way of proficient drawing. I had to teach myself to draw, which meant that I had to think in a way, in slightly philosophic, abstract ways, to see how to relate this to that and what to do about it and, and so on, so that it was a laborious self-education. By the time I'd been, and I spent a lot of time at art schools, about eight years or something, uh, I was so deeply immersed in this, they realised I knew nothing about any of the other arts. And so, that, you know, so I went on. I was thinking yeah. of the Macbeth line about, you know, we're in blood, stepped in so far that returning... That's right, something. exactly. So, yes. was, <laughs> so was, was that at the end of the eight years? There were three art schools involved, Borough, right. Borough St Martins and then the Royal College. Yes. Um, 
the first was was Bomberg and well, yeah. Borough and David yeah. Bomberg. Was that the moment after be, after after time with Bomberg? You, you, there was no going back, or was it before? No, that? I mean I wanted to be a painter. You can't. You've no idea how impossible it seemed to us. I mean, not only whether we were kept being told rightly that there are about fifty people in the country who live by their work, and uh, also I had absolutely no financial support at all, uh, and. Uh, uh, it, it just seemed, and I didn't know whether I would have the ability or the gumption or the courage to carry on. So it, it seemed fairly hopeless. But there was nothing else for me to do. You see, in a way, not having a family was a tremendous advantage. Nobody said you could do this sensible thing and become, I don't know, a lawyer or something. Uh, so that by the, there was no other way out. The only way uh, of making a sort of life for myself was to try to become a good painter. I mean, it was said that the only way out for Odessa was the violin or the boxing ring. The only way out for me was to, out of nothing, as it were, out of a basis of nothing, was the paintbrush. I had, there, weren't, there wasn't really an alternative by that time. Um, and so I, I carried on, and then uh, I, I've described what seemed to me to be a sort of epiphany, a moment of after a long time, when uh, having been an art student and a perfectly acceptable art student, being accepted by the Royal College of Art and so on, where I, I had the courage to, as it were, make a leap into the dark and do my own painting. It looks, it looks fairly, fairly um, tame now, but it, it gave me an idea as to what I should aim for, and then the rest of my life has been in pursuing that snark. <laughs> the, uh, this, the idea, I mean, you, you just describing really that you were I mean you were almost you were on your own yes. your, your early childhood is referred to in the book yeah, you've been yeah. asked about it lots and, and, and yeah. I know it's something you don't want to keep yeah. going back no, to it's no, quite, but you know the fact is when you came to England you know without parents who, who later died and yeah. you, you, you know you were strange them before that happened um, and then at art school I mean you left school at 16 or 17 went to yeah. art school um, obviously certain teachers Rodrigo Moynihan or, or David, yeah. David Bomberg in particular may have played a strong yeah. role and obviously you have a kind of network of friends and family yeah. and so on who sit for you but I still get the feeling that you are in an almost existential way conscious of isolation all the way through is that, is that just a reductive uh, analysis from me or not I mean how do you, uh, do you feel alone I'm not given to self analysis uh, it's, uh, it's a brilliant answer because it means you can get away with anything <laughs> <laughs> but I mean I, but I, I really do I mean, if you, I could describe anybody. I couldn't uh, find it very difficult to describe myself. Do you have a few more? I, I don't know. I, I, I suppose I've been conditioned in a sense. It, it wasn't, you know, it, the conditioning came at least as much to do with this curious school that I was at because it was, it, it was a co-educational school and a progressive school, but it was a, a little self-enclosed curious community, this a school that had come over from Germany, a mixture of English and various people, and run by, there was a bit of a Quaker ethos there, and we lived in fairly primitive conditions on bunk beds and stables, you know, it was during the war, and we formed our own ethos and habit and life, so I was very raw and odd when I came to London. I didn't know how to be polite to people or anything like that, but, you know, we had our own it was an, uh, its own world. And so I suppose I came from left field a bit. But all sorts of people feel alone. I don't, you know, I don't know that I feel more alone than anybody else. And, and teaching, I mean, obviously, yeah. a, a very formative years, very important. Yeah. 
the, the various people that, that, who taught you formally, you yourself taught at Bromley. Yeah. Um, did, did, did you, is teaching something that you um, gave up because you didn't have to do it, it was a way of earning money, and once you were able to start earning a living from painting, you yeah. could give that up? Was it too demanding? Do you ever sometimes wish you, uh, do you ever yearn to, um, actually I've never met an artist who yearns to teach, no. but is, it, is teaching something you could uh, ever see yourself doing? There's a slight parallel to what we're doing now. It's, it's, uh, I, I, I wanted to stop teaching as soon as possible and paint all the time. But once I was doing it, I wanted to do it as well as possible. The same is true of this occasion. <laughs> okay, one final question. But, I mean, and, and, I did, and I liked, but, but I, no, I, sorry, but I remember, I don't know why it came to me today, somebody, some neighbour of my cousin said that I owed you know, a duty to teach, to give something back. Actually, even now in England, there's far too much teaching and far too little painting. And in those days, when nobody could make a living by painting, there was far too much of it. There was a whole sequence of teachers teaching in art schools for people who would teach in further art schools to teach further teachers and the whole thing. You know, and, the, and the little accretion of painting was a relatively small heap compared to this enormously extended activity that went on all over England. Um, so then the final question before I throw you to the floor is, um, as you were able to give up teaching, as you became more successful um, and how you measure success as an artist yeah. is an interesting thing, but critically and com commercially successful, you were able to earn a, a living yeah. and a very yeah. good living eventually from, from yes. painting. Um, I suppose many of us would then think, well, that would make life easier. You've already said earlier in this conversation that you don't find painting itself gets any easier as, no, you, get, no. as you get older. So presumably your mastery of the medium is, is, oh, is it, it's an elusive thing. It's something that you feel you can never do, but has success made your life and the opportunities you have as a painter easier? Well, there are two parts to that question. Yeah. Once when I was at art school, I thought I was learning to paint, and at some point I would be able to paint, pick up the brush and paint pictures, one after another, room full, galleries full, the Rubens of Camden Town. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I never did. It was always a struggle. It was always churning the thing over again. So in that sense, it hasn't become any easier at all. Uh, the fact that I've become economically successful has made my life possible in a way I think I would not be able to function by now. I mean, I take, I'm, I don't walk very well. I take taxis when I get, some, get somewhere. If the heating breaks down, I can, don't have to think twice about getting somebody in to cure the heating. If I hadn't had, you know, the marvelous support that I've had from my gallery for many years now, I, I don't think I would be able to function. So um, I think the only reason why at the age of 84 I'm still able to work every day and is because of I'm infinitely better off than I was when I was 24. When we finish, which is in about 10 minutes, yeah. will you get in a taxi and go back to the studio and paint it immediately? No. I'll go over to see Julia and have a very quiet evening. But I think she'll be sitting for me. I think we'll, I'll, we'll get up at five and she'll get up at six and sit for me tomorrow morning. So tonight's a night off, relatively. Okay, yes. questions from the floor. In the um, 60s, you made some screen prints. And yes. I think I've read that you didn't like them or subsequently didn't, didn't like them. Didn't get on with a man who was a printer. Um. <laughs> I, did, I really didn't get on with him. He'd, uh, he he was uh, he got on very well with all sorts of people, and there was a movement which I've, I'm not particularly. I don't think 
public-spirited. And the idea was that modern art was so marvellous and everybody should have a bit in their home. So that there was a tremendous trade in screen prints done by quite distinguished artists. And, the, and he'd, been, he'd worked with Parlozzi, with Joe Tilson, with Kitai, with all sorts of formidable and intelligent people. And I was trying to do it in a different way, and he didn't... We just didn't get on. So I did these things, and I didn't like them very much. But that was a personality clash. I was prepared to learn from him, and he was not prepared to learn from me, because he, he thought he knew, because I came fairly late in the process, and he worked with people who worked in a different way to me. But so that was Chris Prather? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So collaboration, per se, is... Not something you would completely dismiss. I know, I know from no, no, yeah. it's not. It's just that he was. Uh, I mean, he worked marvelously with Kita, and Kita actually kept a very, very close control over what he did. And what, but I didn't. I couldn't get on with him. I've worked with a, a printer of etchings, and we got on like a house on fire, uh, and very, very well. And he had to. I think I'm not. Very, he he was very, very patient with me because I ruined a lot of plates and I did all you know all sorts of things. And I could I can't do dry point properly, so sometimes I told him to make a dry point line somewhere. And we got on. It's not that I get on badly with everybody, but I just <laughs> got on badly with this other. Print. Just the the matter of a house on fire for an etcher is not necessarily the um, the, the best. Yeah, uh, yeah the, in the foreground here, Richard. You obviously mentioned about your great friendship with Lucian Freud and how he was a great help to you um, in advising and vice versa. Can I just ask how much you kind of miss him since his death and what is it about you miss him? Is it the friendship or his advice as an artist? I don't miss his advice as an artist particularly. Uh, I, I just miss him because my world has become... A, 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 abandoned and depeopled of the people I was fond of. Uh, and, and I just miss him as a person. And, uh, and of course, I mean, I, I miss him as a person and I miss his work, which set a certain standard, which I respected. And, uh, um, I, you know, that because of my arrogance, there are not all that many people whose work seems to me to stir my conscience, and his work did. I'm interested in what you said about 90% of paintings being concoctions yes. and that that kind of um, anti-classical, anti-design stance seems to suggest that you know, truth is more important than beauty in painting. But also, I just wondered what you thought about does an artist like Rembrandt, who had a very <clears throat> classical training, does he reach a, a truth despite that? kind of classical design, a preconceived aspect of his I, I, work. I, I, don't, I think all great painting is classical in the sense that it's complete in itself. It, con, a concoction, I think, means that something that works like a game of spillikins or pattern making without any component of the poison, the strangeness, the oddity that justifies the existence of the picture. If you pose... An, uh, I was referring to the academic nudant. If you pose a... A, a, a picture, a, a nude in a what's supposed to be a classical pose, and then tell people to paint it in a certain way. Uh, it's and they have no particular connection with it. The whole thing might appear to be a concoction if you take a triangle and a square and a and a straight line and arrange them in what seems to to be some harmonious 
way that, you know, it's, it's, it's a sort of recipe without the introduction of the bit of poison, the bit of strangeness, the bit of raw life that justifies the existence of a work of art. And that strangeness can never be preconceived, do you think? Does it have to emerge through the process? No, I don't think it can. I think it's, that's the pearl in the oyster. I think that's the thing that irritates the picture into being. I was kind of thinking about a lot about um, sort of groups of artists from history, like, for example the pre-Raphaelites or the Impressionists that sort of curated their identity amongst each other. And I wondered about you and Kossoff, but also the other London painters and and to what extent you sort of self-consciously defined yourself against what else was happening at the time. I I was very close to Leon Kossoff and uh, uh, we worked... I think there was a feeling that we almost saw each other, the play, our studios almost every week, and partly because nobody was particularly inter- else was particularly interested in what we were doing, and in a sense, to some extent, uh, we were the only people who understood each other's work, and it, it was a situation of desperation, not of forming a band or signing a manifesto, and. Uh, so that he would do something that was looked daring and raw and unacceptable to me, and, I, and then perhaps I might do something that stimulated him. And so we worked aware of each other's work. I've never felt that I wanted to be a signatory to a manifesto or form a group of any sort, but this was a natural conjunction. And the fact is that uh, Bomberg's very influential teaching, which we, I don't think either of us took over completely, but uh, if, there are such, if there is such a thing as a great mind, and uh, Bomberg had an enormously powerful mind, and there were all sorts of implications in everything he did and said, which to some extent conditioned us. Um, and so we formed a little bit a common language, and it never, didn't go much further than that. And then I met other people, as, as I said before, whom I was able to appreciate and whose work seemed to me to be startling and to stir my conscience. And, I, you know, Mike Andrews I greatly admire, and Francis and Lucien and so on. It just came about naturally. It wasn't a... There was never a moment where I thought, let's form a group and change the world. You, you also said that you admired Kitai as a visionary, but it was Kitai's yeah. phrase, the School of London, wasn't it, in the 1976 exhibition, The Human Clay, yeah. that in some ways has put forward this idea of a school. Um, uh, you have said it's rubbish. It's been repeated on other yeah, occasions. Kitai regretted it too. It is a sort of historical accident. There were, what, what happened was that there were these misfit people. You know, there was something, there was a thing of pop art. And there was such a thing as English abstract expressionism, as we've had English, all sorts of things. And there were various, as it were, schools. And there were these misfits who didn't fit in anywhere. Mike and so on. So when Keta used that phrase, I think people were able, you know, I mean, as you know, art historians love to categorize. In fact, they're not happy unless everything is categorized. So the people, they were able to categorize this group of misfits under that, under that uh, title, but that never went further than that. Guilty as charged, but, <laughs> um, but nonetheless, um, you would not deny that being a painter in London, in the period that you've been in London, and having the connections with various artists that you've had, 
has had a profound impact on who you are and what you absolutely. are. Absolutely. I wouldn't have been anything like what I am. No, that's absolutely But you're part of, yet you feel part of a universal tradition, or at least a tradition of Western art that goes a long way back as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, one, it, it sounds really soppy, but, I mean, apart from these people that I'm aware of and to come out and bidden, when I'm in the studio, and I'm sure this is true of everybody, particularly perhaps of my generation, Giorgione came to mind yesterday. He might have been in the room with me. It's, it's, uh, this is what immortality consists of. Some aspects of these people still have life for people living and working now, and one surrounded, it's, it's a human activity. Uh, I know that one chimpanzee is painted, but no other animal is actually painted. And this is the, a, a human construct, and it's formed by everybody who's done it. And when you are doing it in any way that means anything at all, you're surrounded by the example and the, the, all the immensely complicated implications of everybody who's worked before you. Frank, um, I've got a perfect opportunity now to puff the fact that next year we're going to do an exhibition called In the Age of Giorgione here, where we will look at that first decade of the 16th century. Yes. The only reason I say that is I want an excuse to try and get you back here. I'm not asking you to commit to doing a, another public talk, but I'd love to have the chance to show you around that exhibition and, and hear your yeah. thoughts on that. Yeah. It's been as much of a privilege and it's lived up to everything I hope for and I know for the audience. Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a brilliant start to the bank holiday weekend. I think you will agree. Please join me one last time in thanking Tim Marlowe and Frank Albach for a wonderful event. Good and the book. Please go and buy the book. <laughs>